I thank God for all who are leading us in worship today on this first Sunday of 2024. We are beginning a new sermon series called Epiphanies. We're going to be looking at different texts and talking about different themes that encapsulate or perhaps facilitate epiphanies, moments of realization pertaining to God. Today I want to draw your attention to one of the most beautiful passages in all the Bible, Psalm 139. I'll read verses 1 through 16 from the New Revised Standard Version, and the title of the sermon is, In the Presence of a Friend. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. For it was you who formed my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them as yet existed. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word, help them to hear your word, and Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The church throughout the world has done a very effective job communicating the sinful nature of humanity. Churches echo Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Churches emphasize the story in Genesis 2 where Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate the forbidden fruit. Churches uh, describe human corruption in terms such as original sin or a total depravity or a sinners by nature and by choice. Churches decry sins of thought, word, and deed or the seven deadly sins or social injustices. Churches practice the confession of sin in Sunday worship and sing about sin in Sunday worship. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. 
All of this is important because it's theologically and biblically accurate that human beings are invariably and inevitably sinful. This is why we need the forgiveness and redemption that God offers through Jesus Christ. Yet there's another truth about human nature that does not get as much airtime in churches. There's a correlating claim which is biblically and theologically accurate and also merits emphasis, namely human beings are fearfully and wonderfully made. The first time I encountered this idea in Psalm 139, it was an epiphany for me. The statement sparkled like a lone streetlight at 3 a.m. Before Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 2, God had already declared in Genesis 1, let us make humankind in our image. Human beings are made by God to reflect something of God. We're not just sinners and wretches. We're also fearfully and wonderfully made. Bible scholar Nancy DeClace Walford notes that the Hebrew term translated fearfully encompasses a larger meaning of awe, reverent respect, and honor. She further observes that the Hebrew term translated wonderfully connotes something different, striking, remarkable. Overall, then, we are reverently and remarkably made. We are fashioned with awe and honor by our awesome and honorable God. Each of us is created to be different, striking someone special. Bible scholar James Lindbergh tells the story of young Rabbi Zusia, who was quite discouraged about his failures and weaknesses. An older rabbi said to him, when you get to heaven, God is not going to say to you, why weren't you Moses? No, God will say, why weren't you Zeusia? So why don't you stop trying to be Moses and start being the Zeusia God created you to be? <laughs> Indeed, God has no intention for you to be anyone other than yourself. So the next time you get down on yourself or fall into unfavorable comparison with others in your own mind, remember that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. <laughs> While you are a sinner in need of forgiveness and redemption, you are constituted, composed, and constructed by the creator of the cosmos. You are a precious creation of the Almighty One from whom all goodness originates, from whom all beauty emanates, and from whom all truth radiates. You are no accident of space, time, and history. You are a sacred being purposefully crafted by the very hands of God. Long before the constellation of genes in your hereditary history converged into your physical makeup, God envisioned you, God knew you, and God designed you. <laughs> Listen to verse 13. 
It was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Verse 15 likewise speaks of the psalmist being intricately woven in the depths of the earth. The Hebrew terminology evokes variegated cloth. So the image is that of a skillful artisan interlacing colorful threads by hand in order to bring something new into existence. It reminds me of my wife Dana, who is skilled at knitting, stitching, and crocheting. Over the years, she has knitted beautiful scarves, warm winter caps, even a sweater for our young daughter. She has knitted a variety of stuffed animals as well, from puppies to bears to elephants, and they are absolutely adorable. She has a talent for imagining something and creating it. She doesn't follow any a pat set of instructions for making a certain product. She simply envisions it in her mind and then fashions it with her hands. Likewise, God knits each of us into the person God envisions. Instead of yarn, a string, or thread, God takes the strands of body, soul, and spirit and knits them together into a human being. God, the creator, is like a mother in a rocking chair, stitching us together with clear purpose, superb skill, and benevolent hands. Human beings are not the biological equivalent of a product that's mass-produced by assembly line. Each of us is handmade by God. The biological processes of conception, of fertilization, and gestation cannot account for the full beauty, complexity, and sacredness of human life. Each individual is born with a unique personality that reflects yet transcends parentage. Even identical twins are distinct and unique in their personhood. Each person exceeds the sum of their genetic makeup because they're not only flesh and bone but also soul and spirit. God is the ultimate one stitching these strands together into a masterful and marvelous creation. No one is created accidentally or mistakenly. No one is created haphazardly or clinically. Human beings are reverently and remarkably made. What's more, the God who knits us together so very carefully does not abandon us. The God who creates us so reverently does not forsake us when we grow into children, adolescents, adults, and seniors. God remains with us all the way. God accompanies us every step. God surrounds us each moment. You hem me in, says the psalmist, behind and before. God is the primary context of human existence. God is the environment we inhabit. God is the atmosphere in which we 
live and move and have our being. God encompasses our life as a frame encompasses a picture. And God is attentive, very attentive. You have searched me and known me, says the psalmist. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you search out my path and are acquainted with all my ways. God knows us better than we know ourselves. God knows more about us than we do. Several years ago, after a Sunday sermon, a, a parishioner approached me and she asked incredulously, do you really think God knows our favorite color? I had said that in my sermon, and I said, I most certainly do. Didn't Jesus say even the hairs on our head are numbered? Didn't Jesus say that not even a sparrow falls to the ground without the watchful eye of God and that we are of much more value than the birds of the air? God pays thoroughgoing attention to every single one of us. This is not the attention of a spy gathering evidence for our downfall. This is not the attention of paparazzi taking photos to expose us. This is the attention of a caring creator who is keenly interested in every detail of our plight. Many assume God is located somewhere above the clouds, somewhere beyond the Milky Way, uh, somewhere in a distant and, and holy realm and busy with other things. And so they pray as if they're waving their arms, trying to flag down a helicopter circling overhead. But God is as close as the blanket covering our body when we lie down at night. God is as close as the alarm clock ringing in our ear in the morning. God fills the space around us like the aroma of dinner cooking in the kitchen. <laughs> we are not only fearfully and wonderfully made, we are fearfully and wonderfully made to be with God. We're not only remarkably and reverently made to be our unique selves, we are remarkably and reverently made to be our unique selves in relationship with God. God is our origin and our destiny and everything in between. The psalmist constantly senses God's inescapable presence. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? This may sound like a sentimental, devotional, or a superficial gloss on life, but the end of the psalm reveals that the writer is actually struggling amid malicious opposition, amid bloodthirsty adversaries. This is no airbrushed faith, but a gritty depiction. This is no abstract speculation, but real-life reflection. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. The term Sheol signals the underworld, the abode of the dead, the lowest level of human existence, which was widely thought to be utterly God-forsaken 
But even there, insists the psalmist, God is present. In his striking memoir entitled, How Far to the Promised Land, Bible scholar Esau McCauley recounts his childhood in Huntsville, Alabama. Among the countless challenges he faced pertaining to racial injustice and economic poverty, he also had a physically abusive father. Macaulay notes that many people struggle to believe in a God who would allow children to suffer as he did or a God who would allow any number of the other injustices to continually plague the earth. Yet he recalls his experiences praying as a child on his knees in front of a twin bed with his hands clasped and his eyes shut tight, repeating the simple petition, help. Help. Macaulay writes, in those prayers God came to me, not with logical explanations of the problem of evil, but with his presence. When I prayed, a sensation of warmth that began in my chest moved throughout my body. The room seemed less empty. The lack of speedy deliverance frustrated and perplexed me, but I never doubted my experiences of God. It was how I survived. While the presence of God provides more support than protection, while the presence of God supplies more love than safety, God never abandons us. The Lord your God will be with you wherever you go, says Joshua 1. Never will I leave you nor forsake you, says Hebrews 13. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, says the risen Christ in Matthew 28. Whatever trouble or pain befalls us, it does not cancel God's presence. Whatever injustice or adversity hounds us, it does not erase God's presence. Closeness. When our pillowcase is damp with tears in the dark, God is there. When we stare at a blank hospital wall anxious to hear from the doctor, God is there. When we feel alone, forsaken, deserted, God is there. Even when we cannot feel God's nearness, even when our faith is not very strong, God is there. The God who makes us does not forsake us. Notice that even as the psalmist is aware of God's nearness, he is awestruck by God's transcendence. The psalmist is both conscious of God's proximity and cognizant of God's supremacy. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, says verse 6. It is so high that I cannot attain it. There is a humility in being with God without trying to be God. There is humility in knowing that we are in relationship with God without being equal to God. We do well to remember that God is high above us 
yet also right here with us. God is mysteriously beyond us, yet also intimately accessible to us. God is both cosmic creator and close companion. In her book entitled, We Will Be Free, religious historian Nancy Coaster recounts the day Sojourner Truth visited President Abraham Lincoln in D.C. Lincoln periodically set aside time for what were called public opinion baths, in which he engaged in conversation with citizens. And so on October 29, 1864, the president sat behind a desk as Truth entered the room along with her friend and fellow abolitionist Lucy Coleman. Lincoln shook Sojourner Truth's hand, said he was glad to see her, and they proceeded to talk. Truth told Lincoln she was initially concerned for him when he first took office, fearing that he might be torn to pieces like Daniel might have been in the lion's den. But then she told him he was the best president ever to hold the office. Lincoln tried to deflect any credit for the Emancipation Proclamation, but truth nonetheless replied, I thank God that you were the instrument selected by God and the people to do it. Lincoln showed truth a beautiful Bible given to him by a group of ministers from Baltimore in appreciation for his leadership in ending slavery. Truth then showed Lincoln her personal autograph book and asked him if he would be willing to sign it, which he did right there on the spot. According to Coaster, what deeply impressed Truth was that Lincoln signed her book with the same hand that signed the death warrant for slavery. As the meeting ended, Lincoln stood up and shook Truth's hand, saying she was welcome to call again. And later, uh, looking back at this uh, conversation, Truth recalled, I felt that I was in the presence of of a friend. Although she was a civilian visiting the high and lofty office of the president, she felt that she was in the presence of a friend. We can have a similar experience spiritually when we know God personally through faith. Yes, God holds the highest and loftiest seat in all the universe, but when God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, he said to his followers in John 15, I no longer call you servants, for I have called you friends. One of my greatest hopes as your pastor is that everyone involved in our church would sense God's presence and know God personally in day-to-day -day life, as well as knowing God communally in the gatherings of the church. This is vital because there are many times in our lives when the church community is not with us and there are stretches of our journey when even family members and friends are not present and we find ourselves alone. In these times, however, we can still sense the presence of God's Spirit we can still enjoy sweet fellowship with our Creator. And we can still access guidance and support and strength through prayer. 
I can testify that in my own life, in those moments when I felt loneliest, and in those moments when I felt at my lowest, I have often felt that I was in the presence of a friend. What a gift of grace it is to know that our entire existence, from beginning to end and everything in between, is fully enveloped in the loving presence of God, who is our source and our strength, our creator and our companion, our origin and our eternal destiny. Amen.